Zeit And this time of prayer was very special. I somehow felt that I should be watching an old video because for a few years we'd had been closely connected to the revival in Brownsville. That's a long time ago, almost 20 years. It started in 1995, went up to the year 2000. And if you go to YouTube, you can find enough of Steve Hill's messages. We were closely connected to him. He was our friend. And he also preached here in Tübingen, by the way. And we visited him and his home as well. And then I felt to uh, put a video on with a time of prayer that they had, and I had my personal time of worship there, and I noticed something. It was that, that the power and presence of God was there so strongly, and of course it's not about reviving something old, but it's the spirit and the anointing that's always the same. And I noticed people were praying, they were crying out to God, and they they didn't pray for themselves, that was interesting, but rather they prayed for America. And there was such a repentance for their own country. They repented for their nation and they prayed for the White House and somehow I thought, wow, that is really impressive. So it was a wave of sanctification and purification. The revival in Brownsville had the cross at the center, right? You know, repentance, turning away from sin, purification, cleansing. That was their message for five years. Steve Hill, Michael Brown, and whoever else was preaching, turn back to God. At the same time, when we turn back to the living God, the Lord will heal our land, and he will visit our land. And you might say about Donald Trump whatever you want. There is uh, different kinds of opinions, but God truly has used him powerfully for Israel. If you go to Israel, if you get there, you will see infinite gratitude there to see America uh, standing side by side with Israel again, being Israel's friend again. And the, the Lord is blessing this in a special way. And somehow I thought maybe that placed the seed 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago by people who were crying out to God, Lord, heal our nation. So the perspective here for us in Germany and Europe, I'm not sure what you feel like, but when I read the newspaper, I'd rather uh, close it up again, because there's so much in there that's not encouraging at all. Well, of course, internationally, there's also trouble. You can see things, there's panic and fear because of the coronavirus, the number of deaths has increased, of course that's the one thing, but also there's lots of false information in the net, and then immediately there's racism there, anyone who looks Asian it has to be careful not to be really dissed, and then if you wear a face mask come from China, the, uh, immediately the yellow fear is, the yellow danger. Danger is, is up again in everybody's mind. So wherever you look, you have to wonder what is going on. In the press, they report about the increasing violence and aggression in the in society. Anti-Semitism is exploding everywhere. It's really terrible what we have to see here. And we also see the position that German ta Germany takes uh, towards Israel. There's nice speeches, but when you take a look at the UN, there is 
just the, the German ambassador is not clear at all, but he tries to teach Israel. I don't need to repeat all the negative news there. Just open your newspaper once and you find everything there. We also see ecol ecology becoming a new religion, uh, bringing new me messages of salvation, world climate disaster, and so on. We see things happening there, and at the same time, we also see Christian values uh, being replaced by other values that are completely contrary. Many times we didn't even realize that. But many times we find that the uh, roots are in faulty developments of enlightenment. And before you sit here and say, oh, Bittner is speaking against enlightenment, no, we've enjoyed many privileges there. Um, and we are grateful for the enlightenment. But there is also faulty development. And the foundation is that they have the premises that a man can actually uh, get out of this uh, self-inflicted dependency also on God and leave behind biblical values. They think now man is uh, ready at last to be uh, reasonable, to use his mind. He didn't use do that up to now and now he can change the world because actually in his, by his nature man is good and when we are good we can do something with education and when you uh, can make yourself a better person with education maybe the circumstances also get better. But some Somehow that also doesn't seem to be true. So ever since uh, the Enlightenment, man has become the center of life, of the world, the universe, and somehow man seems to have left behind the God of the Bible. And my friends, unfortunately, this spirit of the age is deeply uh, embedded also in the church, and I include charismatic free churches in that as well, has deeply entrenched itself in the churches. So God himself has set times and seasons for nations. This is something that we also had learned about 20 years ago, you know. It was the beginning of a wonderful movement that we are still blessed by. It was the beginning of a 24-7 prayer movement begun by John Molinde coming to Germany who released that 24-7 prayer. And since that time, we've had 24-7 prayer here in this church as well. The prayer of the uh, uh, persistent widow. For 20 years, we've been praying. I'm grateful for each one who's there. And you have to know that the names of everyone in the church are named every three hours. We pray for all the churches and ministries here. We are praying round the clock here, not only here, but also in Leipzig, in South America, and many other places also. So God has uh, determined times and seasons for nations. And he also has determined how to act with them and how to deal with them. Because the nations are not just uh, just something, but God is looking at nations, and He's also looking at how to bless these nations. Of course, God wants to bless Germany. He wants to bless Austria, Switzerland, Poland. Doesn't matter which nation you're from. God wants to bless. In Acts 17, verse 26, we read that from one person. He, he created all the nations of the earth and he determined who should arise or fall and he has given them their boundaries. So there is times of God. There was God's timing for the flood. There was God's time for the exodus. 
And after a predetermined time, Moses came and he led them into freedom. There was the time of God in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's a judgment for a city. And then there was a time for the end of the exile in Babylon after 70 years. And there was a time of God for Nehemiah and God's time for Jesus. Luke 13, 33. How often have I longed to gather your children like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, did, you were not willing. See, your house shall be left desolate to you. And I tell you the truth, you shall no longer see me until the time comes when you shall say, Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there was one phrase that I learned from John Mulindi. And I keep sh speaking about this. Let me quote this here. If the failing morals and pornography, violence, drugs, divorce, rape, crime, once they are accepted and accepted as normal, if that which used to be abhorred before, if government and society and the churches and pastors accept this, then it is God's time for a nation. And these signs are something you have to realize because then it is the time to wake up from your slumber. It is the time to seek God persistently and calling out to Him. It's time to bear His burden and to cry out for mercy. It's the time to pray persistently. And so, my friends, if that time is not now, when is it? And sometimes we can actually really get information on politics from the newspapers and we can be upset, we can have our own opinions, they can differ and vary, no question. But my friends, the point is that the Lord will always look at the church first. And he's asking, what is the church doing? Are they seeking my faith? Is the church willing to turn away from the evil ways and to repent? Is the church willing to seek me and to cry out to me? Are we willing to do what it takes at this time? In Joel 1, 10 to 12, there is a description of Israel as a nation. And it says here, the fields are desolate and there is drought in the land. And my friends, we can refer, have this referred to Israel, but we can take it as an image for a nation. So the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, and the oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. That's Joel 1, verse 10 to 12. So that describes a spiritual situation where it is practical, but also spiritual. And what happens there is the consequence of a lifestyle. Not something that happens from one moment to the next, but it's the consequence of destruction. So this describes a land that is dry, that is destroyed. There is no fruit. It's like an image of 
rejection, of a lack of protection. But it didn't happen because of some sudden circumstances, but because it is the result of a long-term development. So you could use this as an image for what can happen when a nation turns away more and more from God. And sometimes you can be surprised. Why is God silent for such a long time? Sometimes you can be surprised that things run as usual and you think, oh, well, things are going. You know, we can live our normal lives. And many times people don't even think about it, that their actions will have consequences at some point. Because you get used to the wrong ways, and you think that these wrong ways are actually normal. But what we need to realize is that it doesn't matter how we act, whether we honor God or not, whether we take his path seriously or not, whether we love his word or reject it, What we do does not have any influence on the power and authority of God because that always remains the same. He remains the same. He has got everything under control. He does not lose control in not, not a single moment, not one minute or second. And then there will be one moment when God will not be silent any longer. And the Bible calls that the moment when our evil has reached the fullness, the full measure. Like a vessel that keeps being filled and filled, James 1 verses 14 and 15, we find that. But everyone who is tempted is tempted by their own desires by their own desires. And then later, once desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. But when sin has reached its fullness, or when it has reached uh, the full measure, gives birth to death. So that's God's principle that we see in the Bible. And there is uh, another translation that says a similar version. It says, it is our own egoistic desires that keep dragging us off to evil. If we give in to them, we receive evil. If we follow our own selfish desires, and that brings forth sin. But sin always leads to death. So sin always leads to death. And the question is, what can we do? That is also the question in the Bible. What happens? Because this is not God's plan, right? Because God wants to bless. He wants to bless the land. He wants to bless families. He wants to bless you and us. He wants to show us his love. And God's answer is always the same. He asks, is who will stand in the gap? So as we said, there are principles that God does not change. Sin that is fully grown gives birth to death. And the question is, who can actually stand in the gap? Who can stand in the breach? Only those who know the power of forgiveness and grace, right? Because we can't expect someone to stand in the breach who does not know the power of forgiveness and grace. And so, my friends, when I look around in politics, in society, many people are really upset and are speaking negatively. But I am convinced that 
There is so much work, labor, and commitment on behalf of this nation. There's so much good intentions that people are really willing to work hard. They're willing to truly do their best. To even risk being talked about in the media, to receive very negative reviews. There's lots of love to the nation as well, but all of that does not legitimize or even enable us to stand in the gap because we can only stand in the gap for a nation when we know the forgiveness of Jesus. Only those who can call out to Jesus, who can cry out for mercy and forgiveness. That's why we read in Ezekiel 22, I was looking for one man who would stand in the breach and who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so I should not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I had to think about this. You know, my friends, how can it be possible that the Lord did not find anyone? And how is it today? It, does the Lord find people here in Germany? We do have intercessors here, right? Of course. There is prayer movements, there are prayer houses. There is, there is prayer in Germany. But the Lord says, is there anyone who can stand in the gap He's looking for a man or a woman, a church in Germany. And I am convinced that he's also looking at us. He's looking for people who will be a able to see and perceive what it means how a nation can be changed, how God can visit a nation, save a nation. We have gotten used to too many things, my friends. We have gotten used to negative news. We have gotten used to racism, violence, aggression, hatred, and attacks. But God has not grown used to that. Blessing is something different. You know, there was one revival man who was quoted over and over again. I love what he said. His name was John Knox. And he prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I will die. Uh, we do have a Scotsman among us, right? Lord, give me Scotland or I'll die. That's a different kind of prayer. Lord, give me this nation. There is a cry, a passion, a crying out. There's a revival. The Lord wants to give a spirit of prayer and intercession once again. People who are hungry for God, we need a spirit of intercession, of beseeching Him. We have gotten used to too many things. God is looking for people who truly believe that He will intervene when they call to Him. God will raise up people of peace and of blessing. God is calling people who leave behind places of dead religion and who have reached that point of desperation. Des desperation not in the sense of throwing away your life, but in the sense that I expect change only from God, not from another set of elections. Not another prime minister. But that I expect only God to be able to change things. People who will bow their knees and humble themselves and God can give a spirit of intercession. Charles Finney is a wonderful preacher of revival and if you have time, read some of his messages. And he said, 
And it is as if he were speaking into our day-to-day. -day. He says, stop with your uh, milk and water sermons on the love of Jesus if they don't lead to a lifestyle of holiness, a turning away from immorality. Do you want to hear it again, Charles Finney? Because in heaven we will meet him. So we shouldn't reject him down here. Stop with your milk and water sermons on the love of Jesus unless it leads to a holy lifestyle and a turning away from immorality. So a holy lifestyle and turning away from immorality. Holy lifestyle that's pleasing to God and turning away from pornography, turning away from internet pornography, soft pornography, turning away from immoral films, turning away, turn away from it, even to the point turning away in my thoughts. So we need renewal in our land. And I am wondering, where does the power and the anointing come from? What do we have to do and what can we do in the first place? And where has Jesus taught us on this? I don't know how you are doing, but if Jesus teaches us, we should take those things seriously. And now let's take a look at a story. And this is about the temptation of Jesus. This story is found in all four Gospels. And if it's found in all four Gospels, it is really significant, okay? And at the same time, it's also the case that if you look at the story here, Somehow you notice that it is not necessarily found in this place. Let me read from Mark 1. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, I am well pleased with you. And then the at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. And then we can also have a look at Matthew 4, the first two verses. After this, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So that's a really important story in all four Gospels. Also in Luke, you can find it there. And it is located between the commission of Jesus and his baptism and the beginning of the work of Jesus, the public ministry. So it's found right wedged in between there. At first he's uh, commissioned, this is my beloved son, and then there's temptation, and then we see Jesus preaching and doing the works of God in authority. And that seems to be so important that the Holy Spirit himself leads him into the desert. So we see that it was the Holy Spirit who led him into the desert. And the word temptation is quite old-fashioned. It comes from the Greek, actually. Erasmus. And there, in the biblical sense, this is the temptation of sin or to sin. That's temptation, the seduction of sin, everything that wants to cause people to live in disobedience and unbelief towards God. 
And we see the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the desert, and the desert is the contrast to a fruitful garden or paradise. The desert is the place of neglect, is the place of judgment, the place of temptation. So you can apply the desert to your own life, you can apply it to cities and nations. So the desert represents the place where you have to seek water. There is no water. And you have to seek bread, and there is no bread. As I mentioned, the desert can represent our personal desert, nations and, and countries. But the good news is that when we read the story of the temptation of Christ, for some reason, the desert is turned into an oasis. God is doing something in this desert. So he is doesn't just take Jesus by the hand and lead him out of the desert again, but even in the desert itself something happens. It becomes a place of healing, reconciliation. And I want to tell you, if you are in a desert in your family, a desert of your past, a desert that is oppressing you, uh, of neglect, God is changing and transforming deserts into oases. He makes it into a place of healing and reconciliation. And then we see Jesus fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And immediately we remember Moses. Do you remember Moses who was on Mount Horeb for 40 days and in prayer and fasting? And during those 40 days, he received the Word of God. But Jesus is in the desert. He is the Word of God. He doesn't receive the Word of God, but he is the Word of God. And he takes the Word and he overcomes the temptations of the devil. So that is the preparation so we understand the story. And now let's take a look at the first temptation. And sometimes it looks differently to what we imagine because the devil isn't like so simple, but he is very much a liar. And the tempter here, it says, and then only in, in the second place uh, he's called the devil the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of God tell these stones to become bread Jesus answered it is written man does not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God or that God has promised so that's the first temptation it actually sounds very unspectacular if you are the Son of God. I mean, those who were mocking Jesus at the cross said the same thing, you know, in Matthew 27. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Hey, come on, prove that you are the Son of God. And my friends, that is a demand ever since man has been around. God, if you're there, show yourself to me. And that's called proof of God. The devil always wants God to have to prove himself. You have to prove yourself. Prove that you're a good Christian. Prove that you live rightly. If you want to be a good Christian, don't just talk, but do something. Don't be just such a fool. And so here the devil disguises himself. I'm sorry for everyone who's uh, an intellectual here. He dresses up and pretends to be a realist and a reasonable, 
rational person. The tempter is trying to disguise as someone who says, well, tell these stones to become bread. I mean, that is amazing, isn't it? Jesus, the Son of God, he's the specialist in multiplying bread. He's the specialist who multiplies bread and fish. So 12 baskets are left over. So he is the bread specialist here. And you want him to change these few stones into bread? And the answer that Jesus gives is man does not live on bread alone. So it's not about what you do. It's not about what you understand. It's not even about what God can do for you. But first of all, it's about obedience towards the Word of God. You don't live by bread alone, but on every word, it's on obedience. So man does not live by bread, but he lives by everything God has said. That's point number one. Second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. Don't tempt him. Don't test him. So this second temptation, the devil tries to even quote the Bible to trick Jesus. He uses Psalm 91. Actually, it's a psalm that refers to the protection of the temple. And a New Testament theologian said one thing, and I really liked it. The devil shows himself as a uh, avid student of the Bible and as a theologian. In a book I once read, uh, Joseph Ratzinger, the former Pope, uh, had uh, Pope Benedict, he wrote, wrote great books and he quotes a Russian uh, philosopher on religion. I had never heard of him before, Vladimir Zolovyev, and he wrote a booklet, uh, The Brief Tale of the Antichrist. And so in this booklet, he dis this Russian uh, philosopher on religion describes a brief passage on the Antichrist, and he says the Antichrist will receive an honorary uh, PhD at the University of Tübingen because he's a great Bible scholar. And then you can read that speaks on and, and warns of the errors of Bible ex exeges and Bible explanation, but not everyone who pretends to be a scholar and theologian is right. And especially here in Tübingen, that's why I'm quoting this. One of the most famous th uh, theologians and uh, scholars of the Bible was called Gerhard Kittel and he actually was an advocate of the Holocaust and a supporter right here in Tübingen and there was a new uh, testament assistant of Adolf Schlatter and his name was Walter Grundmann he laid the foundations of the de-Judaization of the New Testament so here we see the second temptation 
This speaks about a theological discussion between the devil and Jesus, how to deal with God. And he says, what the devil says to Jesus here is, just uh, give a condition to God, test him whether he will actually intervene for you. So if you jump down, yeah, he will catch you probably. But what he's trying to do here, is turning Jesus into someone who will lift himself up above God. Because if we put our own demands on God, we make ourselves out to be God. And this second temptation here, in the temptation of Jesus, is a temptation for pride. Because sometimes we have totally false ideas what pride really is all about. Someone who's arrogant, maybe, but that's not what I'm talking about. But pride, it's making someone else into an object. And we do that on a regular basis, right? We decide, and God can just bless. We challenge God. And then we're disappointed that he doesn't join our little game. We tell him how it should be and what should be right. And then we actually make that out to be the will of God. We determine something. At the same time, we proudly exalt ourselves above God. So how many decisions do we actually take in this, right here along the lines of the second temptation that we give biblical uh, reasons and to how to see things and what's our opinion and we make ourselves out to be God and we exalt ourselves above him so Jesus did not throw himself off the pinnacle oh, praise the Lord, of course but Jesus went to the cross instead he went to the lowest depths and when he had reached those depths at the cross, he was in the hands of the Father. And my friends, we will not move anything, I will not see anything, we won't be able to do anything unless we first reach the cross, unless we first reach the hand of God, unless we first submit our lives to him. And that's now the third temptation here. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So now this gives us the third temptation, and actually it's the climax of the story. So let's look at this again. The devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, and he offers him rulership and dominion. So that's really strange, isn't it? Very, very subtle here. Because actually that is what the Messiah is called to do, right? We read that in Matthew 28. Jesus gathers the disciples on a high mountain and says, I have been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And there is one difference. The devil only offered him the earth. 
Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so, my friends, only those who have has received authority from heaven will be able to move something here on earth. So Jesus was the risen one. And this authority from heaven requires the cross. Because before he received that authority, Jesus went to the cross. He laid his life down in death. And any authority here on earth requires the death of your and my ego first. And I almost failed in this point. I don't know how old I was, maybe in my early 20s. I, I had such a desire to serve Jesus. And someone somehow gave me a book by a theologian and his name was Otto Siegfried of Bibra. And the, the book was called The Authority of the Risen One. I thought, oh wow, that's good. I'll read the book and then I'll know how to do it. It's only a thin booklet, 100 pages, 50 pages of annotations, 50 s uh, pages of text. That's easy. And the first thing he wrote, he's a New Testament scholar, and the first thing he wrote was, if you truly are called by God, and if you want the Lord to use you, and if you want to serve the Lord in authority, of course, he used different words, you have to have died to your own desires first. That's the death of your ego, for no longer it is not no longer I who live, but Christ in me. So authority here on earth requires you to go through Calvary first. Calvary, where Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, hanging on a cross and where he dies. The kingdom of God, my friends, is not influence, is not mega power and size, but it grows by the word of God and by the obedience of his followers and disciples who keep his commandments. And so, my friends, I'm slowly nearing the end, but the core of all these temptations is very simple. It's pushing God to the si to aside because other things are more important to me. Other things take first place. They take such a hold of me. So the core of the temptation here is that we push him aside and that's what the devil wants us to do. That's the point in all four stories in the Gospels. That's what Jesus had to go through. Therefore, he was sent into the desert And you know, temptation means the devil doesn't want to lead you to do evil right away. He doesn't whisper into your ear, oh, kill your neighbor. No, but he comes very subtly. You know, he comes in such a way that he says, wow, did you know there's something even better? It's great to go to a service, yes. It's great to go to cell group. It's great to be such a clever and intellectual person. But there's something that's even better. Now, come on, forget about all your commitment, your obedience. Come on, be reasonable. 
Hey, you should be doing something reasonable now, something that makes sense. Come on, get going. Come on, you should have influence. What, you're still sitting there, you're 50 years old? You don't have any power. You've actually just lost your life. Come on, you could be doing things, you could be going places. That's temptation to evil. And to give you another quote by a theologian who was a professor for Catholic theology here in Tübingen, Josef Ratzinger again, who became Pope afterwards, says, in this world, we need to resist the disappointments of false philosophies and know that we don't live by bread alone, but first of all, by obedience towards the word of God. That's the message of this temptation story. Point number one, any desert can become a place of healing and restoration. Secondly, the desert in which we live, whether that's personal or also in our cities, nations, wherever, can only be transformed once we overcome the temptation of sin. And actually, if you've given your life to Jesus and if you've committed your life to him, and this is how I also see this story, that is right between serving the Lord and being a testimony, very often you find the devil trying to rope you into sin and God teaches us how to overcome sin because we are more than overcomers more than conquerors and so we learn to overcome sin not just push it aside we don't try to like hide it or paint it whitewash it deny it but take it to the cross and have an encounter with the God of grace right so if we overcome this temptation of sin we reach the point of reconciliation and the desert, the wilderness is transformed. What does that mean to us personally? The Lord is asking us, is there anyone here who will stand in the gap? Can I find anyone here in Tübingen, in Germany, anywhere? What is the core of temptation? This temptation to sin. I want to tell you all three examples actually come down to the same point it is a temptation to pride it is tempting us to be proud so to repeat that we've got our own images of pride please let's try and leave those images aside you know the arrogant person because usually pride comes along very friendly kind smiling the first temptation is the pri pride of mind and reason who wants to challenge God. The Lord has given us a mind, no question, but the pride of our mind exalts itself above the living God. The second temptation and sin is the kind of pride that makes God an object of my own will. And how many do times does that happen? How often do I take my own decisions and expect God to comply with them? How many times do we 
make our own decisions without actually listening to what God wants or even asking him how he wants to lead us and guide us. And the third temptation and sin is the pride of religious or even Christian influence or maybe even charismatic influence on society wanting to grow without actually accepting the message of obedience of faith and following the cross. My friends, we are living in a time when the message of following Jesus, the message of the cross, the message of discipleship and of obedience of faith has become very toned down, very much pushed to the side. Any temptation to sin can only be overcome through obedience and humility. Only through obedience and humility. There is something within us which the Lord wants to make resound again. It's not about some short-term emotional push and then I can get rid of those things. But it's about actually realizing who I am in the light of God. So God can be God. Will the Lord find people who will stand in the gap? So in closing, I want to say James 4, 6 to 10. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So let's not just hear this for ourselves, but also for our city and our nation. God gives grace to the humble. He doesn't say to the rich and prosperous he gives grace. It doesn't say even to the self-righteous he gives grace. But to the humble he gives grace. Submit yourselves then to God. I think this is something what we need to learn again. To submit to God. I can only submit to him if I don't tell him what to do. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, this is what Jesus did. He says, now devil, it's enough. Go away. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I so much desire for the Lord to be able to visit us once again, personally, in our city, in our nation. Many nations are joining us through TOS TV now, but especially here in Germany, we need God's mercy once again. We need God's compassion and mercy. We need him so we can pray and call out to him Lord have mercy come on our nation come again on our churches come again on me personally start with me Lord and I want to invite you now that we will pray together like this